Welcome to Unlikely Intersections, where intent, impact, and inquiry inspire our conversations. I am Dr. Terry Jackson. I'm with my good friend, Dr. Philip Brown, and we're at the intersection. What is interesting is that we all face intersections on a daily basis. How we deal with those intersections will drive the trajectory of our daily life. So, with that said, <laughs> how are you doing today? Man, I'm good. I'm, I'm real good now that we're finally started. <laughs> yeah, today's topic, near and dear to my heart, because it takes me back to something that my father always uh, talked about and still does. Our, our topic is fact-based conversation, mm-hmm. but the theme that my father always uh, drilled into my head and and uh, still believes in is the concept of perception is reality. Yeah, that's, 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 that's the truth. And fact-based conversation. It's interesting how many people like to give their opinion and they think that their opinion is fact-based. Yeah, I mean, and it, you know, and it's almost more than think, right? It's, it's, uh, folks have gotten to the place that, that opinion has displaced fact in the course of conversation. And lots of reasons why I'm looking forward to exploring some of those here in the next yes. uh, little bit. But, you know, it, that whole concept of perception is reality is so deeply true and so flawed as well, right? Because what we got to explore is perception versus reality versus reality check. Yes, yes. Because my reality is my reality not the reality. And all of my realities are based upon, as you say, my perceptions. So oftentimes what I have to do is ask myself, is this real for me? Is this false for me? And and what is the real reality by removing myself from that reality to, so that I can, quote unquote, objectively look at the situation. Go to the balcony. Yep, yep that's it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, in, in medicine, we make fun of people on, on the concept of, of, of perception as reality because we'll say things like, you know, yeah, that doctor is uh, often wrong but never in doubt. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and it's uh, that so many things that, you know, I'm poking fun at my own profession, but at the same time, you know, everyone is subjected to that or is subject mm-hmm. to that because that's almost the way things have come to be is that this, the world according to me and the way I see things must be right. And so my brain is running a trick on me to try to reconcile everything with uh, confirmation bias that proves that obviously I was indeed right. <laughs> yeah, that, it's it's amazing. You know, you you hear you can you can listen to different topics and you hear people discuss different topics, and they're giving you all of this information, and then when you have a little bit of knowledge about it and you've done some research on it and you're listening to them, you're like. None of those, none of what you're saying is true. What you're giving and, and disseminating is a great deal of misinformation. It's more opinion than it is fact. And it's obvious that you haven't read any credible sources around what you're discussing at this particular time. 
And that happens so much on a day-to-day basis. We're living in, a, I think we, are, I think I, I saw a statement that says, you know, we, we're uh, we're living in a in a in an age of a lot of information, um, but a lot of no, not a lot of knowledge because misinformation is a part of that information that we get daily. Well, it's amazing as we as we find ourselves in this technological revolution and and just onslaught of different information it becomes the the ability to tell something with conviction becomes becomes the reality that's right and that's always risky it is i'm convicted so it has to be true right and that's not necessarily the case it has to be based upon facts and you being a physician uh me having you know studied uh at the doctorate level, we were both kind of trained to be able to gather data, information, discern, and come up with the facts. Um, a lot of people haven't had that kind of training. And so as they listen to the different news outlets or read the different newspapers or listen to their friends, um, they come across a lot of misinformation. And we really want to get people to understand the importance of facts base conversation so true and when we have the sort of the current climate that we have where you have large mass media outlets driving a lot of the dialogue and conversation and they're polarized to a certain extent and then you have all these user agreements on every app we have Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. all of social media and it's trapping us and it's trapping each person into their own insulated little bubble. And the more we hear things, it's a constant drip, drip, drip in the same circles. It really does begin to take on truth because as it becomes consistent (laughs) with our our pre-existing bias, we just incorporate it into our model of the world and off we go. Yeah, absolutely. And the majority of the people will not take the time to read, to find out if what they're saying is true. Again, in, in, in the little bubbles in which we live from time to time, that information surfaces and travels so much along that bubble that we think that what we're saying is fact when it actually isn't fact at all. And that is a lot of the challenges that we face as a country. Um, over the last eight years. At least, at least eight years. And we're finding ourselves where you can't have a civil conversation because people end up so staked out. It's one of those, well, you just can't get there from here things. That's right. right. You just can't get there from here because there's no space for somebody to listen. Until we begin to to break that down, it's going to be tough. You know, we're gonna we're gonna be likely to stay in relative gridlock, but it doesn't have to be that way. And one thing that is is, is very common, if not ubiquitous, is that how situations occur to a given person is totally what determines their behavior going forward. Very rare is it that that a person is going to take an action 
that's inconsistent with how a situation occurs to them. And so the trick becomes, how do we create dialogue that can change the way something occurs to somebody whose mind is so fixed in a certain position? That's... <clears throat> That almost takes an act of God to make that <laughs> to make that happen. Let's let's, let's look at the example of uh, the Sandy Hook scenario, where the unfortunate incident of school shooting happens, and you know everyone is memorialized, <clears throat> but yet there's a radio host who's saying that all of this was a false flag, that none of this occurred, and he went on for years with that same rhetoric, which, which, which was misinformation. And ultimately, the families of Sandy Hook took him to court and they sued him. And there was some ungodly amount that they made him, or they're gonna make him pay to the families for the misinformation that he was putting out about what really happened at Sandy Hook versus the deaths of those students. 900 and some million dollars, I think, <laughs> just yeah. shy of the 1B, one yes. billion. Yes, And it's amazing. Those things are really hard to, to understand, although the likelihood for somebody like him is there had to be, you, you would think, some kind of profit motive to it, um, some kind of way he was engaging people in a way that had self-interest because it just – you know, you, you you always, to me, have to ask the question, what must be true for somebody to be doing something or to be saying something or to be thinking a certain way? What must be true? Uh, and for me, that's actually a key question that opens up the space mm. personally for mm -hmm. me to entertain different things is, you know, if I hear something that strikes me as not right, mm -hmm. If I just ask that question in my own mind, sometimes it enables me to pay different attention. I'll say, what must be true for Terry to think what he just said mm -hmm. is true? You know, if he had a profit motive, whatever profit he generated as a result one of his think. conversation, <laughs> one would think that it probably is not as much as the $900 million that they're asking him to pay as a result of the damage that he did to these families, the emotional damage. Um, I would think that it would be very traumatic uh, to the families uh, to have to listen to that rhetoric. But as we look throughout society, there are groups of people, there are even news outlets that continue the disinformation and the misinformation and it's, it has to be profitable for them and there has to be, as your your question, there has to be some truth to whatever it is that they're, you know, they're disseminating. You just wonder, you know, why would why would anybody have that much? Even, uh, you know, why would he keep that dialogue in play for so long? Mm -hmm. You know, it just it doesn't even uh, there. There's no way to really make intuitive sense out of it, right? What? What is he perceiving that makes it reasonable to continue that? What is it that he refuses to see mm -hmm. that makes him perpetuate that? Or is is that particular individual just one of what I believe is a is a 
very small minority of people in our country who just is out for again out to work against a group of people and and basically has a diabolical motive i think most people don't have that i yeah. think we have tons of ways that we convince ourselves that we're doing something good we can mm -hmm. trick ourselves into acting in the interest of the greater good and when we're really self-interested mm -hmm. but i don't think that's most people's motivation i just you know yeah I, i'm in agreement with you I, I don't think that there are a great deal of diabolical people out there who are going to continue to spread rhetoric um to fool the masses of the people uh with them having an ulterior um, a motive and it was obvious that his his uh his motive was 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 truly profit <clears throat> to begin to, to continue to tell the story after the evidence was uh, presented. But we face that every day with uh, different evidence uh, that either people don't want to see um, or don't have an understanding of, but yet they continue to spew misinformation and disinformation to the public. Well, there's tons to be gained by that, and you know, we can go back in history and look at at tons of examples of that. Some of which we we've, we've actually talked about in previous episodes, and oftentimes that self interest piece underlies, and it can be different things. A very common one is you know controlling the voting base, right? Mm -hmm. There are lots mm -hmm. of misinformation about that. You know, we just went through the huge midterm cycle of. Mm -hmm nonsense on television of all these commercials that you know it's all about the spin right you take one true statement or you know one quote and put it with another quote that was unrelated mm -hmm. and you know make a story <laughs> and if you tell it compellingly enough people start to believe it mm -hmm. but that negates the the really important underlying thing about truth is that context means a lot. Yes, it does. It means a great deal. And that's something that I don't know if everybody's learned or understand that it has to be in context. You have to understand the context to understand exactly what's said, especially in this country with the news media, because we take sound bites. We get a sound bite at 15 seconds or 20 seconds, and all of a sudden, that sound bite has helped us, has created a perception and created our reality around an individual or a circumstance that actually happened, where if we go and take a look at the, the full five minutes, we see that it was totally different. And we have to take the time to look at the full five minutes versus a 15 or 20 second sound bite. Yeah, the dubious practitioner of truth, right? That's what that's what they're going to do. And a lot of times those sound bites, those partial stories, those facts that don't go together mm -hmm. are used to drive fear, mm -hmm. to create a behavior. Mm -hmm. And the less connected we are, in a, in a real connection, connected with people that can help us reality check that perspective, people that have different experiences than we are, the more susceptible we are to exactly that kind of thing. Because we've talked about a lot of times, 
fear creates a lot of bad behavior and it puts you in survival and you do different things, you mm-hmm. know, and, and it just, it cl- fearfulness closes down your options. Mm-hmm. And, you know, <clears throat> as I think about all that we do in this country, <clears throat> all the industries, fear plays a major role. You have to buy car insurance because we you make, want to make sure you're protected. If you get into an accident, you have to buy health insurance. Want to make sure that you're you're able to take care of your family uh, or pay their hospital bills uh, because of uh, if anything happens to you. So at the very root of a lot of industries that we have in this country is fear because fear pays for a lot of people. The creation of fear. And what we're really talking about is how do we discern uh, facts in such a way that we minimize the fear because you have or you know how to get to the whole truth. And we kind of talked about that in in, in another episode, an earlier episode. We want the facts so we can get to the whole truth so you can understand the context and not let the fear mongers drive fear amongst the people. Because facts are a great antidote to anxiety and fear. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's so many different, I think back to so many different arenas where that's proven true uh, and books being written about it. Even as simple as, even as simple as tee shot in golf, anxiety creeps in, <laughs> you know, because oh, man, if I hook it into the pond, mm-hmm. it's going to be bad. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to have a high score and we'll lose. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, that anxiety creeps in. But one of the tools is to be up there and ask yourself, what evidence is it that I'm going to hook it into that pond, right? How how likely really is that? I mean, I've just hit five slices in a row. Right, team, right, right, right. And right, all of a sudden right. now, you know, and so – that whole thing of let's let's take a pause let's take a pause and let's let's really take interpretation out of it and mm-hmm. let's just say based on how often this circumstance happens here are what are the true factual elements of it mm-hmm. and just reset that's right and and oftentimes people don't pause and ask the question so what are the facts Let's get to the facts. And once I get to the facts, I can tell whether this story or this message is misinformation or disinformation. And I can take the facts and construct what should be given how the message was given to me. Or I can, I can construct how the messenger wants me to receive the message if I have the facts and I understand what the facts are. But most people don't ask that. They, because someone else said, this is what it is. They believe what that person said is. That influencer, whether it's a good influencer or not so good of influencer, they believe it because that person said it. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's factual. Well, and we see all kinds of disasters based on that, right? The FTX thing was one recent one where, you know, folks are putting – putting trust in a certain perspective that really becomes the way it is. And, you know, when you unravel it now, you realize that was all just made up. (laughs) 
even the election was 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 actually won, but we lost it, right? The election was rigged. That's probably one of the biggest pieces of misinformation because there was no facts behind it. The judicial system itself found that there were no facts behind it, but we still hear the story simply because people are living in a bubble of whatever their perception is, which has created their reality around what actually happened on election day. Yeah, and it's making it difficult for us to talk to one another. Yes. <laughs> you know, which is a recipe for, for real disaster, in, in my opinion, because that reality-checking component where I ask somebody to do that for me, right? Because I need help, right? Like, I know that my perception is limited to the world I've lived mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. and the people I've encountered. So I've, I personally have create tried to create a habit of reality checking with folks who have a different perspective than I do and say, you know, this is what I'm thinking or feeling. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. Or, you mm -hmm. know, what's missing? Or where is it Where is it just a, a, a misperception? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and even with that, asking people to help you check your reality or going to find sources, objectively finding sources where you can read to say, well, okay, this, this does add up or this does not add up. But what we need, and, and I, for lack of a better phrase, I think oftentimes in this country we've been quote-unquote dumbed down, you know, the, the critical thinking piece that we've kind of talked about before. They don't want us to think critically. And critical thinking means that you got to go do some research and you have to read. And so um, what appears to be happening is we've gotten away from that as a society, that whole read and research and let me write down the facts and I can show you, you know, the facts versus he said it. I believe it. That's it especially when it comes to the news media, because we don't understand that the news media is purely entertainment. They give us some facts, but it's purely entertainment because they're looking for ratings. Why? Because at the end of the day, they have to have a profit. It's really made a strong, strong move in that direction, uh, which it, it just makes it difficult. Yes. You know, and how you navigate it is the real question in my mind, because right now it's uh is whoever tells the most compelling story <laughs> that can connect it to my experiences mm -hmm. has got to be, that's got to be the gospel. Uh, and it's really, it's really not that way for anybody. Like, you know, anybody who falls for that particular line of thinking is is doing the same thing, right? They're mm -hmm. they're all dealing in misinformation, whether it's me, you, or anybody we don't know. That's right. And it erodes the truth. It erodes the trust that we would have in each other, right? Because we may be friends and we may have some political differences, but given that that trust that we would have from human to human, it's impacted negatively because. I can't believe you see the world that way. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a small step to go from what must be true for Terry to think that, or how in the world can Terry think that? Exactly. Right. Exactly. And that's exactly. where we go so much. And you get these folks that get louder and louder and louder with the same echoes. And there we are. The same echoes getting louder. Still, still uh, disinformation. Um, but the message is louder and more people are listening. And so somehow the untruth becomes a truth, at least for some people and how they believe it because of how they perceive the world. And that's dangerous. And we look back, we know, we, we know what happened in Germany. It's dangerous. We, we can take a look at what happened January the 6th here in this country. That's dangerous. Um, but for whatever reason, there are those who continue to carry those types of messages. The other thing that we don't talk about much, a lot of times we talk about the adversarialism that gets created in that world, but there's something that's maybe even more dangerous that gets created, and that is apathy. Mm -hmm. And that apathy is probably, you know, in reality, it's the largest group of people mm -hmm. that sit between the extremes that are beginning to take a, a position of, oh, I'm just not going to engage in that one way or another. That is so far out there, you know, and they say it in both directions. And then there's just this mass disengagement when in fact, what we really need is more engagement, right? Yes. To figure out, you know, how do we, how do we make a pie out of these ingredients? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, they're, there is nothing inherently wrong with a given perspective mm -hmm. until it runs up against a truth that's counter to it. And then we've got to work through what that means, right? Because something can be totally true for you mm -hmm. and be fact-based and be completely untrue for me mm -hmm. and also be fact-based mm -hmm. because we do live in different realities Mm -hmm. no matter who we are. Mm -hmm. And at some point, as we come together to do things, we got to be able to be okay with that. We got to understand that that is a true phenomenon. It doesn't necessarily have to hold us back. Work through it. How do we work through it? How do we work through it together? How do we work through it to even agree to disagree? Simply because I see it differently, you you see it differently. My reality is my reality, and your reality is your reality. And it all has to be based on what the facts actually are. It's always been a little unnerving to me how people don't see facts. And put the spin on a story, however they choose to spin it. Let's, let's take a look. And you talked about apathy, uh, which is, that's been on my mind the last couple of days, um, simply because, you know, I looked at the election in Georgia, the Senate race in Georgia, and both candidates. And there wasn't a clear winner simply because I think that apathy played a point, a, a, a piece in the runoff happening December the 6th, I think it is. 
because if you listen to both candidates, to me it was clear, and maybe that's just my perception and my reality. But I, you know, I looked at what I thought a politician was, and I didn't see that in one of the uh, candidates. And so it was clear to me, given my perception and my reality of what politicians were. But it was obvious that others saw it a different way, which, of course, now we have the runoff in Georgia December the 6th. But apathy, from what I understand, African-American males as well as Latinos didn't really turn out for that particular election, and that's why it was as close as it is. And and now there's the possibility of a candidate who says that um, – the United States is the best, you know, we, the United States is the best country. How did he say it? He said that the United, we are the best country in the United States and in the world. And I said, the best country in the United States and in the world. He doesn't understand what he's saying. So if he doesn't realize that this country is the United States and not a, not within the United States, he thinks it's two separate countries. How could he potentially be a senator? Because he made that statement. We are the best country in the United States. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I have noticed, I've, I've looked at it from a different angle because this weekend I spent a little bit of time looking through some of the different clips mm. of things he said clearly taken out of context because mm-hmm, it's just mm-hmm, a little mm-hmm. and, and I'm thinking by itself it sounds a little crazy <laughs> but it could also be a powerful metaphor in the right context and I don't know what else he said and you know <clears throat> I heard him speak toward the werewolf and the vampire but I understood in context what he was saying he was saying that, he said, I didn't know that a werewolf could be a vampire and what he was really using as a metaphor to talk about his opponent. But people got caught up in the story of, why is he talking about a vampire and a werewolf? But if you listen to the entire piece, you would understand that what he was really talking about was defeating his opponent in the political race. Yeah, and you know, you see that, and we saw it, golly, we... You know, we saw it just in our face, like we do every election cycle on the on those sound sound bit commercials. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, the scourge mm-hmm. of any time you're trying to watch the football games on the weekend, <laughs> yep, you got to yeah, navigate yeah. through them or the, the basketball game. You yep, know, and you're like, right. not that's again. Right. That's right. And you know, in the local races, mm-hmm. a lot of times you know all the people. Mm-hmm. Right, you actually have had some relationship, or you're one degree off from from the people, and you're like, this this commercial has nothing to do with what they said. That's right, right? Like it is so far removed, and it's just it's amazing to me. Not that those commercials run, it's that people actually believe it. And the reason, the evidence I give for that is that you go out and hear what people are saying about these folks, and it sounds like the commercial. And you're Mm -hmm. like, but we know her. Mm -hmm. 
we know him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's like even though we actually know better, we have begun to believe it because you know we watched three games on Sunday and we heard it. You know. Six times at each game. That's right. That's right. You know, I, I think it, it, some, it goes something like if you tell a lie often enough, the people will begin to believe it. So if you give this message of disinformation and mi- misinformation enough, people begin to believe it because they're not, critical, they're not critically thinking. They're not – a lot. oftentimes they're on autopilot, so there's not a whole lot of thinking going on anyway. It's a whole lot of regurgitation, and that's what you're hearing. You're hearing the commercial from someone who sat there and watched the commercial six times, and so all of a sudden now they're, they've been indoctrinated into uh, that person's philosophy around politics, and you begin to hear that with no facts whatsoever. It's amazing to me. It is just literally – amazing because it's um it's so counterproductive mm-hmm. yet it's such a temptation for all of us mm. right is that the more we see the more we believe the more you know and it becomes it becomes a model that we put in play that doesn't have any foundation in reality right mm-hmm. it just was somebody's good storytelling that that tricked us and i think about you know how this comes to play in a in a in a team construct maybe it's a maybe it's an executive team or maybe it's a you know a, mm-hmm. a work team could be a athletic team of how you fight the phenomenon we're talking about mm-hmm. and you really do have to you have to put some principles at play and to me, one of the first ones is most respectful interpretation, which means I'm not going to jump to a conclusion about the meaning of what you said. I'm going to, I'm going to take it as well-intentioned, and then I'm going to explore it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use curiosity to understand, mm-hmm. and I'm going to get you to elaborate the facts out of it mm-hmm. for me so that we're on the same page, right, because I can't. I can't make the assumption that I even understand exactly what you mean based on what you said, mm-hmm. right? You could be meaning it a, a different way than I perceived it. And so in that group setting, it's really important for us to seek clarity together. Definitely. And to me, that's one of the most important things. I've seen a lot of high-functioning teams reach that high level of function with that philosophy, Right taking all the you know it takes out the assumptions which takes out the hurt feelings which mm-hmm. takes out the comp you know sort mm-hmm. of the the competitive environment between folks that ought to be aligned mm-hmm. you know and at the end of the day it enables you to to reach well integrated solutions and take action yeah you know and there's a lot that comes with that because i think when i say this it'll resonate with you one of the things that i saw was the lack of the willingness to have tough conversations, right? Tough conversations are conversations that are needed. I think based upon some people's reality, what happens is 
they place a connotation on a tough conversation. There are certain emotions that they feel around having a tough conversation, which prevents them. That whole fear comes into that. But a tough conversation is a tough conversation. And I think the label that's given to a tough conversation is bad. If it's a tough conversation, it has to be bad. But there are plenty of tough conversations that are good conversations that we just need to have in order to move forward. And so I think that, and I know I've had this conversation with Dr. Rao, it's the connotation that's given to tough conversation. That connotation of it being a bad, negative kind of conversation. When in fact, it's just a conversation because we've removed all of the emotion from it because what we're trying to do is move forward for the greater good of the parties or the organization or the team. And we can't do that until these conversations are had to get understanding and to get alignment such that we can move forward. Such a huge uh, leadership pitfall, right? Yes. Is that is that controversy is counterproductive when, in fact, it's mm-hmm. it is only once you get those different viewpoints into the room that you can create those integrative solutions that mm-hmm. that actually work. And a lot of the teams that you see that are functioning well not only don't shy away from those kind of conversations, they embrace them Mm -hmm. as the way to go. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important because that's ultimately how you distill down to what are the true facts. And it's an interesting exercise. I've run with a number of different teams I've worked with where we challenge one another to, to put a statement in, in, into fact, mm-hmm. right? And it's amazing to me how often the first attempts to do that is just an interpretation of interpretation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you you keep drilling down into that and you finally get at the basis of what that fact was. Now, that doesn't mean it was a misstatement. It just means it's how it occurred to that person That's to right. say it. That's right. And then the way it occurred to the person who received it was something else still. And if you have a a team of seven or eight people or or more, then (laughs) each one of those things is often a a couple degrees different, right? right? And so really challenging the group to distill that down, to boil it down to its essence of facts, ultimately gives you that the foundational elements from which you create solutions. Teams that do that do well, whether it's business, whether it's sports, whether it's social groups, mm-hmm. it makes a big difference because it gives you a chance a lot of times to make sure that what you're dealing in is consistent with the values that you've set out and with the purpose that you're trying to achieve. Yeah, You know, <clears throat> even the industry, if you will, that supposed to be the industry of truth in this country, the judicial system. They suppress facts, they omit facts that maybe shouldn't come in. Um, 
there's all kinds of techniques that they use that doesn't really get to what the facts are around the case, even though we are told these are the facts of the case. As we discussed uh, in our last episode, there's a lot of ambiguity in the judicial system that uh, just doesn't help us get to the facts around a case and how those facts to, or those facts are used to either defend or prosecute someone. I've always been just amazed by that process. I've done a lot of expert witness work uh, and have sort of had a behind the curtains look at how that works. And it's amazing. You know, you get sworn into testimony to tell the truth, the whole truth, but nothing but the truth. But then they tell you which parts of the truth you can say. <laughs> right, right. Right. And they right. do objections and there's all these different things. And, and at the end of the day, the jury instructions go to what you're permitted to consider mm. as facts, right? So it's all based on technicality. And at the end of the day, the truth is that whichever side tells the most compelling story in the eyes of the jury and based on what the judge has permitted into evidence is going to win that case. Yes. And it doesn't have a darn thing to do necessarily with the truth of what happened. And there are lots of conflicts in that. Um, yeah, but we don't have to conduct our daily lives that way. No, we don't. We don't. We can ascertain the. It's easy. It's it's easier than a lot of people think to ascertain the facts, right? It just takes a little bit, a little bit more effort in your research, as you said. You you t spent a little bit of your weekend kind of looking at different uh, segments of a particular. Uh, political race, just to see what was said, what wasn't said, what's true, was it a soundbite, am I really able to put it in the context given what was said, and if people would take time to do that, guess what, you could ascertain the facts. Yeah, and there's one other thing you got to do, be willing to uh, entertain the possibility that your bias is wrong. Yep, that's, that's the truth. <laughs> right, that's to the say, truth. Oh, oh, you know, the way I've always thought of this, uh, you know, there's a whole nother side that's equally as plausible, right? right? You don't even actually have to admit, you don't even have to be in a place where you say, my perception is wrong. Because the thing is, is that both could be right. That's right. That's the other thing. You know, we tend to find ourselves a lot of times arguing either ors, mm -hmm. but most of the time it's a both and world. Mm -hmm. That's right. You know, and it's a, it's a false, there's a false, what I call a false dichotomy, right? That you have to choose one or the other of these perspectives in order to be right. And that's just not, not the way it is. We've been taught the right and wrong concept, right? It's wrong, you're, you're, you're wrong and I'm right. And that's how, versus we live in an all world, right? And as you said, I should be able to consider both sides and it's possible that both sides are actually right. But most people are not going to ask that and most people are so caught up in the construct of the right and wrong that they don't, they miss so much of what the all is. You know, one of my favorite statements is right and wrong is relative to the side of the issue that you're on. And I can prove that. All we got to do is look at politics, Republicans and Democrats. If I listen to certain people, they're, they're going to say they're right. If I listen to the others, they're going to say they're right and the other people are wrong, right? We play that game all the time. But it's relative, it's very relative to where you where you stand on an issue. That's so true. And 
we can do a lot better. Again, mm -hmm. it's that same thing. Just take a pause, validate, and realize that in a complex world, there are a lot of different truths. They're partially overlapping. Sometimes they're completely overlapping. Sometimes they're totally different. And all those things are viable. And our ability to navigate successfully from any intersection of differences is based on our ability to work through that. That's right. That's right. And our willingness to unlearn and relearn, right? Because that, that's a lot of what it is. You know, when I believe a particular way um, and I'm willing to do the research and then to say, well, you know what? my perception and my reality isn't what was right. Now that I've done this research, I have to unlearn what I thought was right and relearn. And people have to be willing to do that and humble enough to do that in order to really get to what the facts are. Well, we carry with us a ton of baggage mm -hmm. that, and, and, Every year we accumulate more, right? Because it's based on our experiences, mm -hmm. what happened to us, how we felt about it, what subsequently went on to develop after that, and we carry it around with us way too much. But it's protective, right? Because it helps us construct our models that, that we believe help us navigate. And what we so often find happening is that we get into a situation, maybe that situation is totally different than anything we've ever experienced, but we, you know, pull out volume 12 out of our backpack and mm -hmm. say, yep, this is exactly like volume 12. Mm -hmm. This is what's, these are the truths around it. Mm -hmm. This is what's happening. And that ain't it chief, right? Like that is just, you know, it is a totally different situation that we're applying a set of rules to that are only based on our truths and not around what we're actually looking at but it's self-protective that's right it's interesting because yesterday i just posted on facebook um best practices lead to mediocrity because again i'm applying a model that worked in the past for uh, a situation that happened in the past that may not necessarily be the right model for what's going to happen today or tomorrow so next practices is what i should be interested in but that means that I have to learn I have to do some research and I have to read and I have to anticipate um, even though some of the facts may be the same the situation and the circumstance is probably going to be different so gathering the facts discerning and then being a little bit intuitive because I always believe, even though you got some facts, there's, a, there's still a, an inkling of intuition that plays into it because we're dealing with, you know, we're human beings. And so um, I think it's easier that way. It's more effective that way. Uh, but we have to have the facts and what they say, nothing but the facts. And, you know, that reminds me, what you are saying just a second ago, reminds me of uh, evidence-based medicine, right? Mm -hmm. So evidence-based medicine is a two-edged sword as well, right? So it's really based on population. So 
for a given problem across a population, you know, if I take this set of actions on everybody, I'm going to end up more often than not mm-hmm. to the good, to mm-hmm. the better for the patients, right? And that's that's true. That's mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. what that means. Mm-hmm. What it doesn't mean is that it's going to work out if I take this action on you as my patient. That's right. And if you're the patient, you know, you bring a lot of variables to the situation that are different. And failure to consider those variables makes the evidence basis of decision making a little bit flawed. Mm-hmm. And so we have to put it together, right? We have to we have to look at what evidence would suggest would be best in mm-hmm. in, in the majority of cases or you know 80% of the time or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. And then look and understand how well the context you bring to it as a patient fits into that. That's right. So is mm-hmm. there a are there exceptions that you have because we know all humans are exceptional? That's right. Is there an exception that you bring that says a different action would be in, in your best interest? That's right. A modification to what you would normally do, right, given what the data says, you know, because I know they come around with all these studies, right, <laughs> around how this particular drug uh, does with this particular uh, situation. But it could be I could be the outlier, you know, simply because I bring a different variable. And that's often not considered it's okay, you fit within this 80%, so we're going to try it. And then if it, if it doesn't work, then you just come back. We come back a little bit, and we'll try something else. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, and, and there's, there's varying uh, stakes to those decisions, mm-hmm. you know, and the, lots of different conflicts behind how those, uh, how those studies get put together. Mm-hmm. You know, we got lots of different sort of selection biases and research and mm-hmm. different kind of mm-hmm. things that we always have to guard against. There's no perfect mm-hmm. answer, right? So you just try to navigate, you know, really as safely as you can, but, but you do have to, you know, you do have to take those individual considerations in, as a part of the process. Right. Right. And what we also have to understand is what may be fact today may not necessarily be fact tomorrow. And so we have to begin to take a look at um, as facts change, our, I hate to use the word opinions change, right? As the facts change, right? Our responses change. Um, our solutions may change given what the facts are as we gather more information and more data. What we really want to shy against is the misinformation and being able to discern between the mis and the disinformation versus what a fact is. That really reminds me uh, back to pandemic. Mm. And as we look through the phases of the, of that pandemic, you know, early on, we knew so little about the disease itself. We knew, but we knew principles of public health and different kind of things. And so really, you know, most of the advice was all geared toward very generic things and they were all effective mm-hmm. to a certain degree, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Not nearly as effective as getting a vaccine once a mm-hmm. vaccine mm-hmm. became available mm-hmm. and, and things like that. But the craziest thing happened is, is that people could not accept that uncertainty. Mm-hmm. They couldn't accept that 
best practices changed. Mm-hmm. And so basically it became a process of totally discounting those changes or totally buying in to the old way when changes were needed. Mm-hmm. And we ended up with just this mess. We still have controversy around it today because of an inability to accept that there were certain facts at the beginning, more facts got added all along the way, and with a lot of those changes, different behavior was indicated. And at times, we did well with those changes and changed the change the directives and at other times we hung on too long Mm -hmm. and didn't change when change became when the change need for change became evident and so you know we really messed that up (laughs) i mean Mm -hmm. i don't know a different way Mm -hmm. because we were we were living in a world of opinion Mm -hmm. and we continue to live in that world of opinion too much now which is i think a real cautionary tale because another pandemic could certainly occur. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they've occurred uh, over the course of time. There's no reason to think that, that it couldn't happen again. The mm-hmm. only thing is, will it happen again while we're here or is it going to be after we're gone type thing, you know? And, and so I would like to think that this whole thing about fact-based conversation is something we can use now, yeah. right? We, in fact, in my mind, there's an imperative that we figure out how to do it better. Yes. Could save our lives. I think it, oftentimes I think things are easier than we think they are. And oftentimes it's just a matter of, okay, a simple question at the very beginning of the conversation, what are the facts? And let's list them out. Yeah, right. What do we know? Yeah, yeah. What do that, we think? That's it. What do we predict? Absolutely. Well, then it's like you, you know, it's your saying. I've heard you say it a bunch <laughs> of times, right? I mean, it's simple, yeah. but it's hard to do. Yeah, that's right. It's simple but hard to do. <laughs> let's go ahead and list them out. And we can we can we can we can create what that narrative is, or we can create the story around what the facts actually are if you just ask the question up front. And that's where you begin the conversation. Yeah, yeah. This is, you know, this has been fun to talk about because, you know, at the very essence, the principles are, as as is frequently the case, the principles are simple. Yeah. The execution of it yes. is where the devil comes in. The That's right. The details of yeah. getting it done are really, really tricky. We as human beings love complexity. We like to hear people use large words because they have an expansive uh, vocabulary and it sounds so beautiful and we get, you know, we become enamored with all of, all of this that we think is complex when we really should be dealing at the other end of simplicity. That's the, in the political game. We get, well, we get some politicians who are very eloquent in their speech and the people get caught up emotionally. And they don't ask the question, so what are the facts? And we hear our university professors give up and give eloquent speeches, and we don't ask the question, what are the facts? 
and we get the TV news reporters who give us all this information. And so we don't ask, what are the facts? If we would ask, what are the facts, instead of buying into them up front because of their role or their position, we buy into them versus questioning all assumptions. So tell me, what are the facts? If we do that, which is, to me, much simpler, we'll get to the facts faster. I couldn't agree more. And the simple fact of it is we're about out of time today. So I really want to thank the audience for meeting us at the unlikely intersection. And if you want to hear more, you know, go to our website, unlikelyintersection.com. Check us out on YouTube, like, subscribe, share. Check me out on LinkedIn at Doc Philip Brown. And you can get Terry Jackson, PhD on LinkedIn as well. We thank you for listening. We hope that this is thought provoking for you and it will inspire action. See you at the next intersection.